This morning for our text, we look to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 to 25. And this is a sermon entitled, The Call to Freedom. The Call to Freedom. Uh, Paul is making a case to the Corinthians along a couple of different fronts. And specifically, he's dealing with the constructed family. And by constructed family, I mean what God has constructed how God has created the family to function. And so in that way, uh, he's making the case that along the lines of marriage or those who have been widowed or those who are single uh, would walk as free before the Lord. And so I believe that even this particular section, as we march through them all, ties back to the factions and Paul's solution to not be enslaved to those who have created and erected factions. And so what Paul is teaching is that in the constructed family and those who do not have families, uh, that they ought to synonymously walk together in unity, but also walk as free. So he wants people to be free. And so Paul, his case in this particular text to be made with the Corinthians here can be summed up by saying this, that he that uh, he called them to be free and to be conformed only to Christ. He wants them to be free and only conformed to Christ because you do recognize that there are some who believe they're free, but they're being conformed to the image of another. So they're claiming to be free, but really they're not free. They may have had a confession of Christ, but yet they find themselves walking after men. And so what Paul is saying is, He wants them to be free, not only in their initial salvation, but he wants them to be free in their conformity to Christ. And so I believe that marriage is simply an example that he uses uh, to help the Corinthians understand how this ought to be the case. And plus, they were failing in that way. You and I, we certainly live in a time similar to the time in which we find our passage, historically speaking, because I believe it's helpful for us to consider the consistency of walking in freedom. For in verse 17 of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, so this is an intimate thing, has assigned to each one as God has called each. So he's speaking of individuals who walk together in the collective. As God is called each in this manner, let him walk. So he's speaking in the singular sense of how we relate to one another in the sense in which we are at fellowship. And he says, and so I direct in all the churches. Now, you have heard me say it before that this notion of so-called Christian community is the opposite, because what it does is it speaks to the collective and wants everyone to conform to the collective, no matter what the standard is. And then we might eventually get to the individual. But here what Paul is saying is, I want you individuals to walk as Christ has commanded you so that you may walk with the church. And so I think that is a very important distinction to make, because even if you remember when the factions start, how do they start? They start dealing with the collective first, the general group. And it says, hey, all of you belong to this faction and walk as such. All of you then belong to this faction and walk as such. But what Paul is saying is I want each of you to remember that state to which you were called, that lot to which you were called and walk in that. 
And so I'm going to speak to that point, but I, I do think that he is trying to steer our hearts away from the notion of change for change's sake, because that is the constant mindset of the so-called postmodern man, the man who thinks truth is relative, the man who thinks he gets to define his own journey and his adventure, uh, and that life is simply a personal journey upon which you arrive at some point, and when it comes to its conclusion, as long as you have arrived to where you have established the standard, then it has been a successful life. But Paul is attacking that, and I believe rightfully so, that he is not simply calling them to changes in their lives for the sake of change, that it's time for a change. Paul is saying, remain as you are so long as you're in Christ and be content with where you are and who you are so long as you're in Christ. So what he's saying essentially is, particularly in verse 17, he is saying specifically he's calling believers to be as God would have them for his purposes. So he's saying, I want you to be as God would have you to be for his purposes. Now, specifically, this was a directive to all the churches and to all who were in the churches. He wants them to walk in the manner to which God has called each person. So he wants each person to walk with God in their particular way so that it would strengthen the fellowship of all who join in fellowship together in the church. So I believe what he's dealing with is something that Paul brings up in other places in his epistle. I think what this comes down to as we look at marriage and singleness just as the context of this chapter, I believe what it comes down to is the command for contentment in the heart in the Christian walk. It's the command for contentment. And you and I are not looking out or staring out to a world filled with contentment. We're staring out into a world that wants what they want now, and they're willing to make changes for change's sake, and they're willing to do things so that they may improve their lot based on some standard beyond contentment. Now, I'm not against improving one's standing because Paul is not against it. In fact, he says it later. Look at verse 21. We'll just fast forward very briefly. Were you called while a slave? Now, he doesn't say, oh, that's OK. Be a slave. No, he says, if God has something beyond slavery, then where do you go? Look at verse 21. It says, do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. Be free. Become free. So the change he does promote is the kind of change that would uh, cause you not to have any impediments any restrictions or prohibitions against your walk with Christ. Paul says, make that change. Make that change. But he doesn't say to simply change things in such a way so as to find yourself in sin, because that's what the Corinthians were doing. They were certainly changing their uh, situation and fellowship in the general sense and causing themselves to sin in the very specific sense. And that's why he's addressing what he's addressing. So Paul considers the consistency and contentment that the Christian ought to have in his or her walk. Paul also considers something about God that I want you to recognize, and I believe that you do recognize it. 
But he says in verse 17, only as the Lord has assigned to each one. Now, again, this is the walking with one another related to what is said previously about the husband and the wife and the husband's inability to save his wife and the wife's inability to save her husband. But he does say, I want you to walk as how you are. And that is in the context of what we spoke about last week as they function together, man and wife, and the, you may have one unbeliever, but the home is considered as sanctified. Now, I'm not saying that the home is considered distinctly Christian if you have one unbeliever and one believing spouse. But I'm saying the home is considered a holy place because one is in Christ. Therefore, Christ is there. And so we established that last time. But what he's saying is maintain that place as as such that. God can do his work because it is God who calls as the Lord has assigned to each one as God has called each. So you see where God is placed as the author and finisher of our faith. I don't believe many in the time in which we find ourselves truly believe that God is the author and finisher of our faith. He is indeed the justifier and sanctifier. And we talked about that last time. The trust that the call to peace is the call to the God of peace and the God who can save wayward spouses and wayward children and the God who can save unbelievers and the God who overcomes our unbelief. That we truly believe that that is the case, that we don't have to put anything before anyone except a sanctified life in the word and prayer and trust that God will save. He will do as he pleases. And in fact, I would say with 100 percent accuracy, if you are indeed saved by the grace of God in Christ, that is how you came to him. You came to him through the testimony of a sanctified life. Who are the Christians? And that wasn't the primary thing because you came to him through the hearing of the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word concerning Christ. And somebody must have been praying somewhere. Somebody had to have been praying for your salvation. But in either case, it was God who authored it, and it's God who's going to bring you to the completion of it. And perhaps even as you and I think of the Corinthians and even ourselves, the Corinthians were a wreck. They were a train wreck. And one thing we consider about them is many of them did find the Lord in the sense that not that they were seeking him, but God called them to him. And that's how they found him. He revealed himself to them. And so even in that way, we look back to Israel and the time in which we enjoy reading the Old Testament, how they found the Lord only because God called them. None of them, as Paul will say in our middle portion of our text, none of them were called while saved. They needed to be rescued. And that is the truth concerning all of us. It is the truth concerning all of us. So he is the justifier, the one who declares us not guilty based on the perfect, sinless life of Christ who stands in our place as our substitute. And upon his resurrection, we are given that not guilty status uh, that we are now in Christ. And then he is our sanctifier. He cleanses us. He cleanses us at that moment upon our confession and belief in him, but he also cleanses us throughout the duration of our lives. Paul is saying this is the one who has done what he has done with respect to salvation. But I will say this. What he also communicates is 
None were in Christ by birthright. Look at verse 18. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? Was any man called when he was already circumcised? Now here again, he's talking about the annals of marriage. And I believe that that certainly brings us out to other arenas, not simply marriage. This truth is not only confined to the marital construct that God has created. But what he's saying is that these spouses did not exist in such a way where they were distinctly Christian from birth. That you have unbelieving people in this world and you have believing people in this world who mingle together. But the point he's making is it is God who saves. It's God who ultimately saves. And so I would say a helpful way to think of this, even in the construct uh, that God has disclosed this to us in marriage, is you are seeking God. You're not seeking one who belongs to a certain institution. You're not seeking for the woman. She's not seeking a man who belongs to a certain institution, an evangelical fraternity. The, the man is not seeking a wife who belongs to such. Instead, if you are a believer, you're seeking God and God will call someone to you. And then you, in turn, will play a part, a role in the faith that may be established in the heart of that individual. But you are not the source, nor should you expect to be. I believe that can be said of Christian fellowship. I believe that can be said of preaching and witnessing and evangelism. It's all the very same mindset that one has to have. That no one is in Christ by birthright. And no one is saved by birthright. And so he's saying that each one has been called in a particular way. But specifically, as it relates to the Christian, he's then getting more specific and saying he has to walk in this manner. He has to walk in this manner. He is not to become uncircumcised. And so circumcision as a symbol of of faith and uh, singularity and uh, a focus toward Yahweh. Not the saving act. It was simply a covenant act to demonstrate you were already a, a part of the covenant. To demonstrate your loyalty and fidelity to the covenant. So it says he is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in circumcision? He is not to be circumcised. What Paul is trying to help them refrain from is ritualism, because that's what they were already doing. They were conforming themselves to the rituals, whatever the rituals were, to make it seem as though they were acceptable in the eyes of the people. And Paul was saying, do not conform to the rituals. In this case, he uses circumcision as an example, because, again, it's not just circumcision apart from our text. It's how the circumcision fit in our text. And what he's saying is it's one thing to be uncircumcised and to get circumcised. It's another thing to not be circumcised and then to want to be circumcised. But he's really saying it's immaterial that the circumcision exists at all in this context. Because he says nobody is called already circumcised. Now, again, he's using that as covenant language. If we look at verse 19, he says it plainly, circumcision is nothing. And guess what? An uncircumcision is nothing. Well, then 
What are we talking about, Paul? What are we dealing with? Obedience. We're dealing with obedience, particularly obedience to God's commandments. If you obey God's commandments, you will be free to serve God wherever you stand, however you're walking. You won't be distracted by the rituals and the things that people want you to ascribe to, to place upon yourself, to show loyalty to men. And so in this case, Paul doesn't even want them to marry for pressure's sake. He doesn't want them to simply marry because uh, it satisfies some emotional mindset. He doesn't want them to marry simply because they want to be uh, they want to be seen as such. And then while married, if one is a believer and one is an unbeliever, he doesn't want the believer to think they have a sanctifying role from the standpoint of being the source of salvation in the life of the unbeliever. And so he is very careful to help us understand how this all ties together. That it is a matter of salvation by faith. It is a matter of salvation by faith. He goes to the symbol of circumcision. Now, why is this here? Well, for one, he's helping the Corinthians understand this point. And you have to tie what is said in this text to the earlier chapters. He's helping them understand that we do not perform our way to Christ, not even in the context of marriage. We do not perform our way to Christ. And then he says, I believe implicitly we do not enslave anyone to us to help them earn their salvation. This isn't manipulation at any point. We're not saying I'm going to marry the believer from the unbelieving standpoint just because of an essential idea of goodness. And then the believer is not to say I'm going to marry the unbeliever to save them. Instead, God brings together whom he will and he's going to save whom he will. And God finds them and binds them together. I believe that is truly the construct that Paul is setting before us. And I believe the language is very plain when you think about Israel's history with God. Israel did not find God in the sense that they were seeking for him without him disclosing himself. Israel did not go about circumcising their flesh in the, in the, in the sense that they were going to do this without God impressing it upon them by the prophets. It was God every step of the way helping them understand and see what they needed to do to demonstrate that they were saved by him, that they would be saved by him, and that they were faithful to him. It was God all along. And so God is at the centerpiece of what then takes place. Those who were called to God were uncircumcised in their hearts. I believe this is what he's saying in verse 18 specifically joined to 19 uncircumcised in their hearts until it was God who rescued them. Then here Paul is clear that the Gentile who is uncircumcised under the new covenant. Think about this under the new covenant is not merely being called to circumcision for appearances sake. We're not calling people to be circumcised. The goal then is not to be circumcised, whether for the uncircumcised Jew or uncircumcised Jew. 
The goal is not to circumcise Gentiles for the purpose of tying them together. Now you're starting to see something as we apply this to what marriage truly is. It's not simply to be married and try to say that we're believers. It's one who is in Christ is doing it for the reason to honor God. And when they do it for the reasons to honor God, well, then you will have obedience to God by the believer. And this is how it functions. Right. And so we see it. We see it here that the goal is, as I said, not to be circumcised, whether for the circumcised Jew or the uncircumcised Jew. That's not the goal. That's not the end goal. The symbols are not the goals. The symbols point us to what the goal is. The goal is to be obedient to God. So we strip away everything that would get in the middle of that. And the goal is in verse 19, he says, to be obedient to God. To It is what matters, he says, is the keeping of the commandments of God. Obedience. Each man is to remain in his calling to which he was called. He says that. Look at verse 20. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Who were you when God called you? That's essentially what you have to understand. Now, again, I'm talking about believers. I'm talking about believers. That their goal is not to be circumcised. And he's going to tie that to what the circumcision leads to if it's not done properly. Now, you'll remember this from Galatia. In Galatia, what it tied to was partiality. It tied to a, a, a demonstration, a good showing in the flesh. Showing people that I belong to God by this performance, by this symbolic act, by my marriage, I belong to God. When no, if you belong to God, it is by grace through faith. It is by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, being saved by the blood of his cross and being obedient to him as an evidence that that has taken place in your heart. So essentially, that is the question. Who were you when God called you? You were not called to reinvent yourself for the sake of reinventing yourself. And that is not a call to immaturity. I'm not speaking of that. But what I'm saying is it is a call to be faithful. Whatever course of action I'm taking, especially in the context of this teaching in marriage for all of us to consider, But whatever action I'm taking, it is a call to be faithful to him. And Paul says that is true whether you are bound together in marriage or that is true whether you are single, widowed, or that is true if you are a freeman or it is true whether you are a slave. But each man must remain in the calling. Now, the calling is not simply their particular lot. The calling is salvation. Each man must walk in obedience to the salvation, to the commandments of Christ, to the one who saved them and all the tenets of their saving faith. They must walk in that manner. So what Paul is saying here is transcending our societal lot. 
It's transcending the things that may or may not occur with reference to marriage or abandonment or all these other things. Paul is also describing to us how the call to peace functions that he spoke about earlier, that we are called to peace. Well, we're called to peace, and the only way that you can be peaceable and have peace is by keeping the commandments of God. It's the only way. So he wants us to be faithful. He wants us to be faithful to him with who you are in him related to your freedom in Christ and holiness. Now, remember, from Paul's vantage point, he's writing a letter. He knows by God's spirit he's addressing some things that are on the horizon and some things that have been impacted by what he's already said behind him. And I believe that this text is not only chained to the present context, to the near context. But I believe as you look at the whole book, a lot of the things he's saying will impact other areas. The desecration of the Lord's table, the abuse of the spiritual gifts, the issues about how one must present themselves, whether it be in modesty or elitism. How do we welcome those who claim to be apostles and teaching in the church? Paul is dealing with freedom because he wants the Corinthians to be free. And if they can understand that their freedom is simply tied to faith in Christ and keeping his commandments, then everything else begins to fall into play. And so he wants them to be faithful to him and how they were called. Again, this does not mean to appease the sin nature. This does not mean only God can judge me as a mantra to sin. This does not mean you only live once. This does not mean God's plan as a means of whatever that generic idea is. I'm going to do what I like, but God has planned this. It's not antinomianism, which means against the law in Romans 6. It's not to live against the law and say, I have grace. Uh, I have the grace of God and therefore I can sin with impunity. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you have to walk in obedience. That's the original call which in which you find yourself. He's clearly referring to the obedient life in Christ, and then he's tying it to the freedom that we have. So your freedom in Christ is tied to your obedience to him. It is why the world this morning and every other morning, they're not truly free. You can't be free if you're walking contrary to his commandments. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how much family you have around you. You're not truly free unless you are walking in his commandments. You can be going through tremendous trials and persecuted, abandoned by those who love you. And yet you're truly free if you're walking in God's commandments. You are free. You are not enslaved to anyone. Or you can be peaceable with all men, as you think, and at war with God and be a slave to all things. So Paul is clearly referring to freedom. And not only freedom, but freedom as it takes place related to obedience in Christ. Look at verse 21. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. Do not worry about it. He doesn't say do not worry about it. It is what it is. But he says, why are you worried about your temporal lot? For one, as if that temporal lot cannot change. And if that change brings you into further obedience to God, the change should be made. 
Look at what he says. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. Better to not be a slave in the literal sense. It's better to be free. He's not justifying slavery. He's saying it's better to be a freeman. And I believe he's saying this because the human propensity to settle is always before the hearts of people. And I believe it's also true in Christianity. I believe that people will settle for slavery, for spiritual slavery. They'll settle for it. They'll justify it. You know, people will argue for all kinds of things temporally. But if a man of the cloth comes along and promises them liberty and he's himself a slave, many people this hour, they're slaves. They're slaves to men. They're not free. And what Paul is saying is, I want you to be free. That's the best case. So if you can do it, be free. You don't have to give a lot of yeah buts. Well, I was just hoping. Well, I was, let's see how this plays out. He says, no, if, if, if you're being led away from obedience to God's commandments, you're a slave. Be free. Be free. Because that's what true freedom is. Obedience to Christ. So many see it as something opposite. It's why there's so many distractions. They see it as freedom in Christ is really being bound to men. You hear it. You hear it in people. You hear it in the family construct. You hear it in normal conversation. You hear it when you ask a couple, how was your weekend? How was your Sunday? And they begin to rail off all the reasons they're tired of religious activity, even as they see it in themselves. Well, they're slaves. They're not free. They're not put in position to obey God's commandments and, and truly be free and walk in that freedom. Look at verse 22, because this is about freedom for he who was called in the Lord while a slave is is he says is the Lord's freeman. So the idea here, the essential point here is to be called in the Lord. Wherever that takes place, you're free. Now, he's not over spiritualizing freedom or slavery in the literal sense, but he's saying you're free. Start there. You're free. Now, how can one walk as practically free so that you don't have obstacles to your faith? If you tie this back to what we said about marriage, you begin to see why he says what he says. Whether about marriage, whether about remaining single or remaining as he is in devotion to God. You see why these things come up. That one who is free ought not to regard themselves as being enslaved and one who is enslaved Temporally, if free in Christ, ought not to see themselves as being slaves. Freedom in Christ is the end goal. And I believe that Paul spends this entire letter trying to get the Corinthians to see that. That they ought to be free in Christ. They are not constrained to any man. Nor should any man seek to constrain them. So then this call to peace. This call to peace to which Paul earlier referred in the context of marriage, is related specifically to Christian freedom. In this context, you can be a slave. In the historical context, in the Greco-Roman sense, you could be a slave or you could be free. 
But to truly be free is to be in Christ. And that's what he's telling them. I want you to be in Christ. This is not, as I'm saying what I'm saying, the, the perversion to twist and justify the so-called transatlantic slave trade. I'm not justifying that. I'm not justifying the horrors that were committed there. I'm not claiming the false brand of Christianity on all sides who tries to either unduly and ignorantly justify it or don't know much or enough about it and somehow believe that the best common denominator was temporal freedom. As long as that was achieved, we can get behind it. No. In fact, what I'm saying is that the call to peace is to be free. It is to truly be free. It is to be walking in the commandments of Christ. And so Paul calls for that. But even so, this call to peace is not only to be free, but it is to be free in the very specific sense. Look at verse 23. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. You were bought with a price. I would say price here is if we tie it to everything that you and I know about our salvation. The price upon which we were purchased is of infinite value. Infinite value. Do not sell yourself short. Do not sell yourself off. Do not sell your new birthright. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. These people with their life verses. I've never heard anybody say this was their life verse. Quote unquote. We don't have life verses here. But I've never heard anybody say it. And I believe that's for a reason. Because so many are walking as slaves of men. Most of Christendom. Most of Christendom is walking as slaves of men. If we're very honest. He says you were bought with a that is a beautiful truth and how he weaves it in there and ties everything together around it. It is both a warning, but it is extreme encouragement to our hearts. That you were not purchased by me and I was not purchased by you. You were purchased by Christ. You were purchased by Christ and that value is eternal value. It goes well beyond our temporal lives. The best that men can do, especially in their flesh, is if they wager anything about you, it will be temporal. It will be temporal. It is very transactional and it is very temporal, meaning it only impacts this life. So to truly walk is free, he says, you have to be free from slavery to men. You have to be free from slavery to men. God's man, God's true man, this is his life's work. It's to see to it that people do not become slaves to men. That they do not become slaves to men. That we do not become something corporate or something rabbinical. That we become something distinct and set apart and holy. Listen, in everything we have seen in Corinthians so far, I think it can be summed up in this way. I think it can be summed up in this way. Those who have surrendered their peace 
to be enslaved to men, despise those who live in peace. Those who have surrendered their peace to be enslaved to men, despise those who live in peace. Think about that. They attack Paul. He is free, going about the known world. Even when he's bound in chains, he's a free man. Going about the known world, spreading the truth concerning Christ, the good news, the gospel of our Lord Jesus, the testimony of our great king. And then there in the Corinthian church, Chloe's people, free, free, seeing things for what they are, going to Paul and saying, these people are all slaves, pretending to be free. And then you see the desecration of marriage, enslavement. You see that there was at some point a freedom in that marriage and someone despised it and took it. And then you now have slavery. You'll see it with the gifts. You'll see it with that time of great fellowship at the Lord's table. You'll see it with respect to Paul defining love. But you see all these things. And I truly believe that so many who have surrendered their peace, they have. And I don't mean that they had true everlasting peace. But I mean, they got a taste of it. And perhaps they are apostatized as we have been studying in Hebrews. But they have had a taste of it. And they have surrendered it. Thus, in surrendering it, that was the first act. But then now they're going about trying to enslave others. And I believe we'll see that in the false teachers who emerge in Corinth. That these are religious leaders that Paul will address at that time. But they do not live in peace. They don't know peace. They can't minister peace. They can't be agents of it, and they can't speak for the one who gives it. Verse 25, as we end our time, now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. Paul says in verse 25 that God has called each believer to remain with God in his calling. That's what he wants. Well, what is your calling? Well, first, your calling is to be obedient. Your calling is to be obedient to him. This does not mean to remain in foolishness or unrighteousness for the sake of temporal peace. You have to be obedient to him. You have to walk in obedience. That may cause you to walk into some things and to walk out of some things. But you have to walk in obedience. It is a call to peace, according to verse 15. But God has called us to peace. He's not called us to bondage. This entire context is so beautifully written by the divine author using the human author that there is a caution and there is a a pointing to the need for peace and the means to attain it as we start this near context and as we end this near context. As he begins to move on to a further correction, if you look at verse 15 and verses 24, they are almost woven together directly. Helping us to recall our place of peace and freedom in Christ. There is no slavery to unrighteousness in peace. There's no slavery to unrighteousness in true God given eternal peace. There's no slavery to unrighteousness. Because there can be no slavery to unrighteousness where there's obedience and holiness. There's no slavery to unrighteous men. 
There is no slavery to unrighteous men or caricatures of righteous men in those who are called to peace. You and I are not creating caricatures of righteous men, elevating the view of righteous men so much so that we can't tell where God ends or where God starts. But as such, I say it that way because God is indeed eternal. But remember, he's placed in factions. So in the factions, God is a mere man. Well, that is not so in true Christianity. There is only this. There is slavery to Christ in the sense of joint airship with him. Not slavery to him and then this bait and switch where we really mean slavery to us. But it is, if you are a slave to Christ, you are his joint heir. You will reign with him in his kingdom. That is what slavery looks like to him. And you're serving him in true righteousness while also being at peace with him. This isn't slavery like the world describes it. This isn't serving hardened masters. But you're at peace with him. There is a walking together with each one of us in true fellowship when there is the life, the walk, and the call to peace. And Paul continues this as we will continue our time looking at it next week. Let's pray.